2: One thing about pandemics uh, and crises in general, it focuses experiences. Uh, it is a hothouse for a whole variety of experiences.
0: Some decades after Black Death hit Cairo in 1349, historian of the Mamluk Empire Al-Makrizi described the devastation that the outbreak had wreaked on his hometown. The inhabitants of a house were stricken one after the other, and in one night or two, the dwelling became deserted. Each individual lived with this fixed idea that he was going to die this way. He prepared himself of a good death by distributing alms. He arranged for scenes of reconciliation and his acts of devotion multiplied. As Al McCreezy described it, this once vibrant city was transformed into a virtual ghost town. The visions he conjured up were almost post-apocalyptic. Cairo had become an abandoned desert and one did not see anyone walking along the streets, Al McCreezy said. Debris piled up, people went around with worried faces. Everywhere, one heard lamentations and one could not pass by any house without being overwhelmed by the howling. Hello and welcome to this new History Extra podcast series, The Black Death. I'm Ellie Cawthorn and this is episode three. In today's episode, we want to give you a sense of what it might have been like to live through the Black Death, looking at what writers and chroniclers tell us about people's immediate responses to the crisis and the lengths that they went to to survive. To tell us more... I spoke to Samuel Cohn, Professor of Medieval History at the University of Glasgow, who's also the author of several books on the Black Death. As Samuel told me, for most people, the terror didn't begin when the first person in town died, or even began developing buboes on their neck. In fact, rumours of a terrible pestilence on its way were often circulating long before it arrived.
2: This we see very much in uh, German regions, uh, German-speaking regions, where the uh, chroniclers tell us uh, that they uh, have rumors of what is happening in another part of the world, for them too, far away from their horizons, uh, before the plague even arrives. And across Europe in general, what one finds in before the plague arrives in 1348, where it has already arrived in some areas of Europe and, and people know about it from the Middle East, these apocalyptic visions come through about what what is happening in Cathay of the uh, Far East uh, or in India of the Chronicle from Leicester and, uh, and, and Knighton? He even, for him, the distant world is, is closer to hand. It's even Naples, but he's heard these rumors of these horrible things like worms uh, with Eight legs that drop from heaven and kill by their stench. And uh, black snows that uh, melt mountains and all these poetic stories. And that's even before the plague has come.
0: As well as these apocalyptic tales of deadly rain full of serpents and pestilent worms, The Chronicler from Neuburg Monastery in Austria related stories of men and animals struck motionless going about their business, and contagious smoke that killed watching merchants on the spot. It's easy to imagine just how terrifying these tales of desolation in far-off lands would be. I think we often have a vision of the medieval world as insular and isolated, but when we look at the spread of the news of plague in the 14th century – we can actually see that extensive networks of communication were really crucial in spreading news of what was happening elsewhere.
2: It's merchants, it's also clerics, uh, it's uh, by letters. For instance, one bit of news that's that's really rather startling is notions from these uh, 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 chroniclers in Eastern Europe who, through their network, their ecclesiastic networks have already heard of the plague in uh, in the winter of 1348 uh, that have already struck Avignon and through the connections with the papacy in Avignon. So they, they know about this.
0: And before long, medieval communities recognised the scope of this pandemic as something much, much bigger than a localised outbreak
2: the chronicler at Florence, the principal chronicler for these events, uh, uh, Matteo Vellani, he he says that towards the end of the first wave of plague in 1348, by the time you get into late August and September, that people have now recognized that the plague is everywhere, which they didn't before. According to Vellani, and a couple of other chronicles that hint at the same, there's already been a change, and that change is a a realisation that there's no place to run.
0: When plague did arrive in a town or city, the impact was swift and immediate. Based in Granada, the Muslim scholar Ibn al-Khatib described how it starts in one house, then affects the visitors of the house, then the neighbours, the relatives and other visitors until it spreads throughout the city. This recognition of a rapid, unquenchable spread was also reported by the Florentine writer Boccaccio. He was in his thirties at the time of plague and experienced the deaths of his father and stepmother at its hands. What made this pestilence even more severe, Boccaccio recalled, was that whenever those suffering from it mixed with people who were still unaffected, it would rush upon these with the speed of a fire racing through dry or oily substances. Boccaccio also tells another, more questionable story, which reiterates this idea of the disease moving incredibly fast. It's a story about pigs.
2: So these people in the square and they see these these old rags are from a plague victim and the pigs go to eat the rags and then they uh, lop over and dead.
0: In Boccaccio's telling of events, they, quote, "...both dropped dead to the ground." spread-eagled upon the rags that had brought about their undoing.
2: Yeah, I think it's a story that that Boccaccio uses to show uh, the the quickness and the terrible aspect of contagion.
0: So how did towns, cities and villages respond to this fast-moving crisis? Obviously, every community responded differently, with different levels of effectiveness. But some of the best documentation we have on this comes from Italy.
2: What we have better preserved, and and, and in fact in full, are the immediate decrees uh, by the town of Pistoia, which is a town about 42, 43 kilometres northwest of Florence.
0: These decrees from Pistoia are a really fascinating source, because they tell us in concrete terms about the attempts made to try and contain the contagion. For example, they include an ordinance that no person from neighbouring Pisa or Lucca shall dare or presume to be admitted into Pistoia. Anyone who was breaking that rule would be fined. And those fines were also extended to any guard who admitted them or any person who offered them hospitality.
2: And there you see that these preventative measures come into play. They already know that it's spreading uh, from the from the West. They surmise it's spreading largely from Pisa. And so they become very suspicious of allowing people from Pisa or the next town further East, uh, Lucca, into uh, Pistoia. And they set up other means of quarantining goods, of checking goods, of checking people
0: Fines were also levelled against anyone bringing cloth, bedding or corpses into Pistoia from outside the city. And any of this seized suspect cloth would be, quote, burnt in the public piazza by the official who discovered it. Meanwhile, infected bodies couldn't be removed from the place of death until they have been enclosed in a wooden box and buried at least two and a half arms lengths deep. Hearing these, you might agree that they all sound like fairly sensible measures to put in place for the prevention of disease. And the Pistoia ordinances are also interesting because they hint at the devastating human impact of this disease. They placed a ban, for example, on bell ringing during funerals so that the sound of the bells does not trouble or frighten the sick. All of these measures had real impact on the lives of ordinary people in Pistoia. And in many other places too, the disruptive impact of the plague would be felt immediately.
2: Both in the city and in the countryside, immediately there was a lot of social dislocation. First of all, in the plague itself, with abandonment, with uh, networks of food distribution and uh, supply disrupted. We know that certain things were shut down altogether. Uh, We know that uh, uh, because of abandonment, things were in fact very difficult for, especially at the beginning, for social uh, solidarity.
0: In some cities, day-to-day operations pretty much ground to a standstill.
2: We know, for instance, from city councils in Siena and many other Towns in, in Italy that uh, for a period of almost the, in some places, as much as the entire summer, which is the, the worst of the, of the months of, of this plague in 1348, that courts ceased to function. That uh, people, you couldn't get a quorum that the city government pretty much closed down for those months. You also can see through uh notarial contracts that uh, basically the notary's attention was focused on one thing, writing up last wills and testaments. So the general sort of contractual life, which filled notaries before and afterwards as the, the major thing that notaries in general did, it it, it vanishes from these records.
0: And these dislocations and disruptions had an immediate economic impact too.
2: And we can see this too by looking at real wages, uh, that people didn't prosper immediately after the Black Death or hardly anywhere. Even though a half or I even calculate perhaps as much as three quarters of the population of Florence uh, was decimated by, by the plague, it decreased even more so was basic commodities uh, especially food so people were were worse off because of this dislocation this, this is something where the sources sort of contradict themselves in a way, if you look at the, the chroniclers all across Europe, they're all saying, well, these greedy workers and these greedy peasants, their wages are going way up and they're, they're, they're demanding all these luxuries. Yes, their nominal wages were going up as much as three times, but their real wages were, were sinking. In this period, because of this disruption, the people who experienced it in thirteen forty eight uh, they didn't they didn't see this silver lining of the black death, and by by the time things turn around in fourteen hundred 1400 or fourteen fifteen, they're dead.
0: Of course, as in any crisis, there were a very small minority of people who were able to take advantage of a dire situation.
2: You can go from the literary evidence, so. Uh, Boccaccio, for instance, he talks about the grave diggers. They bid up their prices quite highly, and uh, they uh, profit from it, and they they call the shots. So that's one profession that benefits uh, greatly from it. It's curious that, for instance, one group that should have. Benefited because, at least not with the plague, but shortly thereafter, it would be soldiers uh, because they need it more and there's more fighting, uh, at least uh, with the Hundred Years' War and now with new uh, conflicts between Milan and Florence. And yet we see that their salaries actually go down, in some cases, even nominally, not in even real terms.
0: If there was one institution that defined life in every medieval European community, it was the church. Alongside city governance shutting up shop and notaries ceasing to work, how much were churchmen able to keep up their duties?
2: What you have from the written records is this despair and and even real uh, astonishment of how many. People in the church were running for their lives, uh, the the friars and the the parish priests. Yet the data suggests something else, especially in England, where we have really good data on on absentee benefices. The people who are dying in the greatest numbers were the parish priests, much more so than the bishops.
3: Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com historyextra history extra today to get 10% off your first month.
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Samuel estimates from sources that while death rates among bishops were around 20%, those for parish priests were much higher, around 50 percent. Why? Because while bishops were better able to stay cloistered away in their palaces, parish priests were expected to be working closely with their communities, comforting dying individuals and giving them their last rites, and continuing to do so was a source of pride.
2: Uh, that not all the members of the church disappear. They some, as the chronicler of, of Massina, where plague hits, it's one of the earliest places in Europe They hit in 1347 in October. Uh, and he says, "Look, yes, a lot of these clerics left in their posts. They didn't uh, give the last rites. They didn't attend the burials. But not our friars, our Franciscan friars. We stayed there, and many of us died doing it."
0: As always things are never quite as simple as they seem. While clearly some priests did flee from their duties, others stayed to help, and many paid the price. And while bishops sequestered in their palaces might have had a better chance at surviving than parish priests working in communities, especially in the first waves, money couldn't necessarily buy you immunity.
2: In 1348, this is a fairly democratic uh, or egalitarian pandemic, Uh, and the rich are dying in great numbers, perhaps not as much as the poor. There's work by archaeologists from the Royal Mint in London that that, uh, suggests that it was mainly the poor that died from these uh, mass burials. But what this doesn't take into account is that still the rich are not being buried in these uh, mass pits they still can be buried in their parish churches, and that data is not being analysed.
0: And though rare, we do have evidence of Black Death claiming the lives of some of medieval society's most elite figures. These include Joan, the daughter of England's King Edward III. John VI Cantacazenus, who was a Byzantine emperor, recalled how, quote, "...strong and weak bodies were all similarly carried away." and those best cared for died in the same manner as the poor. This was possibly influenced by the fact that John's youngest son died in the first days of the outbreak in Constantinople. But as waves of plague returned, society's elites found themselves better equipped to escape the contagion's clutches.
2: During the the recurring outbreaks of the 14th century and later but we have very good data, for instance, for 1400, which is when the plague really comes back with a vengeance. And it's it's really a plague of, of the poor.
0: And this is because the rich developed a very simple system for survival, to stay away.
2: That becomes this normalised migration in the summer, which were the worst months during the 14th century for plague, to establish villas and to go to them. It really creates this whole rhythm of movement and of behaviour for the wealthy that lasts really until now, the whole thing of uh, of leaving the city. Now it's at uh, seaside resorts, but then it was in these hill villas uh, that dotted the countryside.
0: Boccaccio described those who sat out the pandemic peaceably shut away with modest quantities of delicate foods and precious wines. But this summer migration wasn't always a fail-safe plan. The chronicler from Neuburg Monastery reported how, quote, "...nobles and citizens seeking to escape death took themselves to safer places. But they had already been infected, and so in spite of their efforts, many were unable to escape and died." Fleeing for safety was clearly a survival instinct, and some were desperate enough to make terrible sacrifices.
2: One subject is is that of this experience is abandonment, and it's much more widespread uh, than historians have recognized. I think, uh, and much more uh, appalling to at least the chroniclers, the people recording it, the abandonment of children, the abandonment of of uh, kinsmen. Times like Boccaccio is one of the few that says that uncles abandon nephews, but it's family members. There are really two types of abandonment that they all decry. Uh, And that is, one, the abandonment of family members. And the worst of this is mothers and fathers abandon their children or children abandon their fathers. And some of them tell these stories, you know, that they... Well, one that's rather gruesome is by the Florentine chronicler Stefani, who talks about, okay, these people, they would go in and see their loved ones dying and say, oh, we're going to go and get the doctor. And then they would uh, squirrel away because of this great fear of contagion.
0: This type of story turns up in several chronicles of the time. Well, it actually
2: comes from the famous chronicler of uh, of Gabriel de Mousis, who tells these stories. They're sort of long-winded and sort of unbelievable of uh, a child being abandoned. And he's sort of in this story, he sort of tugs on his mother's blouse or something. Hey, mom, don't you remember me? You know, you suckled me at your breast. What are you doing? <laughs> so it's not Quite so believable, so some of the stories are pretty bad are uh, pretty ridiculous and and some are really really uh, for me at any rate really really moving and and terrible. The other one that I think is really evocative is the one by Marchione Di Coppo Stefani. He's born d- before the plague. He must be three or four years old in 1348, and he writes his chronicle. He really, starts writing in 1386, but he adds a lot of detail. He has a lot of detail about prices and uh, how things go up uh, astronomically. And a lot of these are not wages; they're the prices for basic commodities. But his his tales. Stories I think are uh, uh, touching about you know leaving these poor people to die and locking the doors with uh, and uh, and just not coming back, not even leaving them a glass of water, which might be some sense of. You know, they're going to die anyway. They might as well die more quickly. But I think, you know, they die suffering. The way he tells that story, I think, is really gruesome. It's really it's really moving. The uh, other side is the, the, the abandonment by trusted professions. And the most common of those professions, one, it's the clergy to give them last rites. They hid for the hills. They're notaries to take the testaments. They hid for the hills. And their physicians or surgeon barbers. And this uh, is uh, really decried throughout uh, Europe, but in very different manners.
0: Writing from Avignon, Louis Sanctus reported on this desperate urge to escape the plague among those who were expected to help combat it. It has come to pass, he wrote, that the doctor does not visit the sick for fear of this contagion, not even if the patient would give him everything he possessed in this life. There's something that Samuel mentioned there that I want to pick up on, and that while people may have fled, this certainly wasn't widely condoned. In fact, it was largely decried. But as successive waves of plague hit, there were examples of people taking a more pragmatic approach. You do
2: find a few exceptions that sort of excuse it, yes, given the contagion, this is logically what what happened. It's very rare, but I have a few examples of that, of uh, sort of making excuses for it and explaining it, saying, giving it a rationale. I mean, the one example of that is uh, the Florentine chancellor in 1400 with the plague of 1399-1400, which is a bad plague. The Chancellor Caluccio Salutati doesn't leave, and in fact, he's, he sort of, in a sense, preaches to his fellow humanists that leaving is is a bad idea. It's not. It's not the whole thing that you get earlier in certain places of, you know, all everything is predestined, so there's no reason, there's no efficacy in leaving, but rather, you must hold your post for the, the good of Florence, for the civic duty. And then he gets a letter back from a fellow humanist from Bologna, and he says, look, Caluccio, stop being so damn selfish. Uh, at least, at least you could have the respect, to let your children come to my house in Bologna where we don't have any plague so to save your children if you don't want to save your own neck.
0: The idea of people abandoning their posts or even their family members is an uncomfortable and horrifying aspect of this story. And it's not the only one. Terror generated by the plague also often spilled over into violence as minority communities were blamed for what was happening.
2: Going back to these German speaking areas when they hear about uh, what's happening with the plague, uh, these rumors too of, uh, uh, well, the Jews and, and other. Minorities must be spreading it and we better do something about it so it doesn't hit us. So you get these massacres. That's the most extreme reaction. Many of the uh, pogroms, for instance, against the Jews in uh, many communities throughout the Rhineland began before there was any plague at all.
0: Sadly, these early pogroms were an indicator of more violence and persecution to follow. Historians have debated how much this anti-Semitic violence was triggered by the pandemic, or how much it was a continuation of already long-existing attitudes. But either way, significant evidence can be found of violence against Jewish communities at this time. The Canon of Constance offered a horrifying account of a succession of pogroms across Germany and Austria, as Jews were targeted by communities who suspected they had poisoned wells and rivers leading to the contagion. The canon reported how in Buchen and Basel all the Jews were killed except their babies who were taken to be baptized. While in Constance he tells us that 330 Jews were burnt in the fields at sunset. The canon recounted how quote some processed to the flames dancing others singing and the rest weeping. Clearly, reactions to the plague and ideas about the measures that should be taken in response differed as widely as people's reactions to the pandemic that we've just lived through. But is there anything we can generalise about in terms of the emotional response to those first outbreaks?
2: Well, I think even though the the expression of those emotions differed greatly from, say, at one end of the scale, butchering and massacring certain populations to where that didn't happen, there is this great fear of what they really did look at this as something unprecedented in history. And that's unusual for people in the Middle Ages, especially intellectuals. They are sort of like uh, lawyers today. Everything has to have a precedent. And yet this was unprecedented. They say, they go back to the Bible and say, yes, these were bad plagues, but nothing like what we're having now with 1348.
0: But alongside fear and violence, Samuel also identifies a resilience shown by medieval people.
2: Two, the other thing is that they did largely, I think, come to grips with the situation, uh, as we were talking earlier in in Florence, that they may have been the shutdown of government for as much as three months. But then it came back and they started doing things in the same way, uh, really. And one sees this with last wills and testaments as well. There's no big shock of changing. There's no one thing that's no at least conscious questioning, like how could God be so evil as to kill all these innocent children and innocent people? There was a rationalization about this that could be even consoling that, yes, life goes on. On the other hand, we do have these letters from, uh, you know, the highest reaches, really, of intellectual activities they would Francesco Petrarch, the Patriarch, the great humanist, who writes letters all through the, the plague, both in 1348 and, and the next one in 1362. And they, these reactions of the, the world ending. Yeah, a lot of, in Chronicles too, thought that this might be the extinction of humankind.
0: Next week, we'll be looking at how people attempted to prevent this extinction of humankind. We'll be exploring medical responses to the pandemic. From avoiding corrupted air and keeping your humours balanced to looking for explanations in the planets and stars. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Additional checks by Rob Blackmore.